Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Ray Galen. Today, I'm joined by Dominic Packer and Jay Van Babel, co-authors of the book, The Power of Us, harnessing our shared identities to improve performance, increase cooperation, and promote social harmony. Dominic is a professor of psychology at Lehigh University whose research investigates how people's identities affect conformity and dissent, racism and ageism, solidarity, health, and leadership. And Jay is an associate professor of psychology and neuroscience at New York University. His research investigates the psychology and neuroscience of implicit bias, group identity, team performance, decision-making, and public health. Jay and Dominic both received their PhDs from the University of Toronto, where they bonded in a shared sub-basement office. I think that's probably a different show, but we can get into that later on. Uh, Jay and Dominic, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. So you should know I am a huge fan, just generally speaking, of Richard Thaler, behavioral economics. You know, I've read the Michael Lewis book. I, you name it, I've nerded out on it. So I'm really glad to have you guys here. But let's get into the book, The Power of Us. So in the book, you guys both draw on your research to answer this question about how our personal identity really works. And you investigate how it is constantly changing. Sometimes we don't even know it. And a lot of times it's against our own wishes. And once the inner workings of identity are understood, we can use that knowledge to boost cooperation or productivity, overcome bias, break political gridlock, and mobilize for change. Well, let's hope so. So what first got you all interested in this idea of identity? Dominic, let's start with you. I think the thing that first intrigued me was trying to understand intergroup relations. So I've always been interested in the tensions and the conflicts that can emerge between different sorts of groups, whether it's over resources, on the basis of stereotypes or long historical conflicts. And one of the things I think I quickly realized, studying social psychology especially, was that identity plays a big role in those dynamics, that who people think they are, and especially the pieces of their identity that get attached to the groups they belong to, can really shape not only how they understand themselves, but also how they understand the members of other groups. And that those intergroup conflicts, in particular, often driven by identities that have come into conflict or opposition with one another. So Jay, Dominic and I were talking, I don't know if it was last week, Dominic, or week before, about this idea of how you identify individually and as part of a group. And I think we use the Pittsburgh Steelers as an example, right? Which is, you can be a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, right? You know, black and gold all the way. But if you aren't in the context of like the Pittsburgh Steelers, it's one part of your identity, but it's not all of it. It seems like there are things particularly politics, which seem to be hardening those self-identifying characteristics, which is, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, I'm a liberal, I'm a progressive, and I carry that with me wherever I go, and I see everything through that prism. Yeah, so it is definitely the case that we contain multitudes. We all have multiple identities, and we could be sports fans. I'm a father, I'm a Canadian, so I have all these different identities floating around. But what's been happening in the United States is that as we've become polarized over the last 40 years, it's gotten worse and worse. People's central identity more frequently has become their political party identity. And they're willing to put that loyalty to their party over and above other types of considerations, values, parts of themselves. And I'll just give you an example of how you can see this. So there was a great study that looked at Twitter profiles. And even over the last decade or so, more people are putting in their Twitter profiles, whether they're a Democrat or Republican. It used to be that you could put, you know, I'm a cyclist or I like collecting stamps, whatever you're into. And more and more, it's just people are seeing the world, identifying and then seeing the world through this prism of, of partisan identity. I mean, I'm probably guilty of that. I would venture to say that most of the people that I follow and that follow me 
you know, have some reference to the political conflict that we're in or the political environment we find ourselves in. But let's go back. When you started thinking through this and you started writing, you had to be thinking about it more than just in the context of politics, although that seems to be the giant maw that everything is swallowed up. And so, Jay, what did you guys learn as you were writing this and as you look back on it? What were some of the things that you expected to find and that were surprising when you found out? I mean, one of the things that's been surprising to me, so I've been studying this with Dominic for almost 15 years. And one of the things that's been impressive to me and shocking over and over again is how people have the capacity to form a more inclusive, subordinate identity. And that was really what got me into this. I was looking at like, we have these automatic, implicit biases towards certain groups, but you put people on a team together and they can overcome these if they feel like they're part of something bigger. And we found that over and over again in our work and in other work all around the world. So that's kind of one of the bright spots. One of the dark spots that I've been learning about and studying more and is a big part of our book is how social media has been shaping that way that we identify. So, I mean, just yesterday, there was the whistleblower from Facebook talking about how their algorithms amplify intergroup conflict, polarization, hate. Which is something that for most of us in politics, I'm glad the whistleblower told us that, but we didn't need her to know that that was going on. And I will say this, this is why she's a whistleblower. So I was part of a publication where we wrote, published in August, a big paper on this, wrote a Washington Post piece about this is how Facebook and these companies are creating conflict. Facebook said we were quite simply wrong. And so when a whistleblower comes out and says, this is exactly the way the algorithm structured and was this what all their internal research that they're not showing you says, the intuitions of people in politics who are living and breathing and swimming in this every day are right. And the research backs that up. So that was something that we learned. Well, and Dominic, if you think about going back to the pre-internet era, what was the old news trope, right? If it bleeds, it leads. We've always been more interested in the horrific 15-car pileup or the house fire than we were on the kid who was 15 years old and you know built six houses with three toothpicks and a nail, even though that's the better story and the one that should encourage us to be better people. That's right. It's not that human psychology has changed, right? We are the same kinds of people we've always been, attracted to bad news, intrigued by the negative, easily riled up by elites who would like us to get angry at the other side or feel outraged. But social media seems to put it on steroids. Not only are we now bombarded with news 24-7, even more than was true with the advent of cable, but it's information from all sorts of sources, right? And we're finding it increasingly that not only are these algorithms promoting disinformation or outrageous content, but that content itself is often being seeded by parties who are up to no good. So foreign actors, for example, purposefully bombarding the ecosystem with misinformation that's not necessarily designed to convince anyone of a wrong fact so much as to rile us up, to get us angry and, and distrustful of each other. So let me ask you this, Jay, in, in the context of Facebook, was it Dominic who said, you know, that we can in groups, we put aside things to achieve something bigger than ourselves. But used for the wrong purposes, Facebook is a good launching pad for people who believe themselves to be part of something bigger than themselves, but isn't necessarily good for everybody, isn't necessarily moral, isn't necessarily what we would consider sort of to be mainstream behavior or outlook. But now it's almost crusade-like. And I mean, look, I mean, we might be guilty of it too. Yeah, I think this is something that we're all guilty about a little bit. I try to be balanced and evidence-based on my feed, but another person could easily see that, you know, I have issues that I care about more, seem more motivated to create action on or build solidarity around. So it might seem like a crusade, but I would say this is part of 
the ecosystem and the incentive structure of hyperpartisan news and social media, which is that people who are at the extremes, they have the most to say, they say it in the most extreme way, that their voices get amplified more. If you look at all the U.S. senators, the ones who have the biggest followings on social media are the ones who are at the ideological extremes. And it makes sense, like a nuanced perspective doesn't travel very well on social media. And so that's the incentive structure that we live in right now. And it's damaging because it just amplifies conflict. And it doesn't really reflect often like a very distributed set of perspectives that the average American holds on many issues. Well, that's right. And so, Dominic, now, as we think through this, it's sort of like you see the elephant and how to eat the elephant one bite at a time. Right. So. Are there ways that, you know, people who otherwise disagree on things, if I'm a former Republican and there's a hardcore Trump supporter, but we know that, you know, there was a flood in our community and everybody had to buckle down, you know, does it take that kind of extreme event for two people who now view the world through that kind of prism to say, okay, you don't like me, I don't like you, we can discuss that later, but now we have to go do this? I mean, I think prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, I would have been more optimistic about that than I am now. It's hard to imagine, in some ways, a a graver global threat threatening not just a human life, but world economies, you know, something that we all encounter at the same time and yet have really failed to rally around, particularly in the United States, but also globally, because this is a global phenomenon. And to cope with it in the long term, with the spread of variants, for example, make sure our vaccines keep working. We need to tackle this globally, and we have yet to even see that work out very well. But I think you're right. There can be moments when some sort of event or common need to work together can cause people to rally more collectively than we have been lately. But Jay, let's put this in the context of the pandemic, which is far too politicized and polarized in and of itself. How is it that folks are grouping together and saying horse dewormer is the way to go? I'm not going to get vaccinated. But you know what? We're all in on farm animal treatments for a virus, right? Like, I get it solves worms and even sometimes in humans, which is gross, but it's not an antiviral. It's not a retroviral and it's not a vaccine. But yet hundreds of thousands of people believe this and tens of thousands have probably tried it. Like, how does that group dynamic even begin? And maybe I'm the asshole for not understanding it. Right? I'm I'm perfectly willing to accept that. But it it seems bananas to me. Yeah. So we have an entire chapter on cult psychology in our book, which doesn't mention politics at all. But the psychology is similar here. It's also similar in organizations. Some organizations develop cult-like psychology where they kind of get into an insular community. And what cults do is they impose and they enforce loyalty. And what happens is the moment that you're part of a group where your identity is based on some belief system, and and one of the cults we talk about, they thought there was going to be a a cataclysmic flood and the world was basically going to die. They're in a house and expecting the UFO to come save them at midnight. Was that the Hale-Bopp people? This was actually the Seekers cult in Chicago. And at midnight, you might think, well, the UFO never came after a few minutes. People realized this cult was a fraud. You know, pick up and walk out of there. No one's forcing them there with a weapon. But what happened was the opposite. They rationalized it. The leader of the cult said, after a couple hours of sitting in silence in the middle of the night, said, the aliens have told me that our faith saved 
everybody from the flood. And so the ship didn't need to come. And then what they did was even more striking. Instead of just kind of like keeping this to themselves, they started proselytizing. They started going out and speaking to other people and telling the media about this amazing cult that predicted the end of the world. But when it didn't happen, it was because of their faith. And so what you get in, in these types of movements is like these people have decided that vaccines are bad. And they're not going to give up on that. That's like their central plank of their belief around COVID is that they're being manipulated by various people, big pharma, you know, democratic leadership, whatever. And so since it's become polarized around that belief, they're still at this point of the pandemic facing up to hospitals overflowing and family members getting sick and maybe dying. And so they have to rationalize the dissonance that happens when they don't want to get the vaccine, but they're dying and getting sick. It's to find some other solution that allows them to solve this crisis for themselves which is basically an untested medicine that has very flimsy evidence that it would be effective at all over the vaccines, which have enormous, incredible clinical trials, super effective. They're going for this thing that's not really effective at all. And I've looked at the data on it. It's just not very effective. And it might be, but it's not even in the best case scenario is not going to match the vaccines. And so they're just trying to solve this problem for themselves, just like these cult followers were in that house after midnight when uh, the flood didn't come. So Dominic, you know, one thing that Jay hinted at was the idea that with that kind of behavior, there tends to be one central figure, one person who catalyzes that belief. And once you're sort of in their sway, and I read something about this, and correct me if I'm wrong, guys, is that now the bigger the lie, the more they'll believe it. They could say the sky is purple, and you're like, it's not, it's blue. And they're like, but he said it's purple. And if you can't see it, that's on you. Right. It can get that extreme in the case of a cult. I think more generally in day-to-day -day life, though, our beliefs are very much shaped by the groups we're part of, the norms of that group, what other members of the group think and believe. And those collective understandings of the world are inordinately shaped by leadership. That is who the group sees as its primary influencers. And they don't necessarily have to hold formal positions of power. So in an organization, it's not necessarily the CEO who's the most influential, right? It could be some other voice that people just uphold as when this person speaks, they speak for us. And I think we're seeing that play out in the political sphere at the moment where, you know, the former president in particular is a particularly powerful identity spokesman for his group. When he speaks, people listen and say, aha, if that's what he's saying, then that is who we are. Although there may still be boundaries to that. And I think that's something that we discussed was that at a rally of his, I don't know, a couple of months ago, he said, go out and get the vaccine. And everybody booed. And he's like, all right, if you don't want to get it, don't get it. And then someone asked him, would he get a booster, which I promise you he has gotten. And he said, I'm not going to get the booster, and I don't think anyone else should either. So, Dominic, to your point, he found the limit of even his ability to sway these people and said, okay, well, I'm a sociopath anyway, so I don't believe anything I say to begin with. So I'll just say this, because what difference does it make? I'm going to get vaccinated again, right? I'm not going to die from this thing. And if these idiots want to, that's on them. I'll add two things that this was from the study on cults. There were two really strong predictors of who maintained their true beliefs, even after they were proven wrong, the prophecy failed. The first one is the strongest believers, the most committed members of the group are really hard to persuade otherwise, no matter what the evidence is. And then the other factor that is really critical is social support. And so if it's just you on your own and you see the prophecy fails or something is wrong, it's easy for you to leave that belief system or that group. If you have a bunch of other people standing around you telling you the sky is purple, it's much more likely that you'll acknowledge that the sky might actually be purple and then maybe over time start to internalize it and believe it. Again, I'll go back to this, maybe one of the problems with hyperpartisan media or social media is that 
before all this was available, it was hard to maintain insane beliefs when you turn on the five o'clock news and some really serious news anchor would tell you the day's news. But now it's so easy to burrow into your little social community of like-minded people and get clicks and likes and reinforced for these false beliefs that it's harder and harder for anyone to shake it. So it's very much like those cult members who have that social support network bolstering that false belief. So Dominic, you know, in the context of your research, in the context of the book, you have an office. There's, let's say, 20 people in the office. Make it easy. No one really knows what everybody's politics are and nobody even cares. But they're in the office. They do what people in offices do, right? They screw around, you know, for every hour at work, they're doing 13 minutes and, you know, they're at the coffee, you know, they're getting coffee, they're shooting the breeze. And so they have a connection to these people, right? This is part of their identity. They work at company X and they love working at company X and they love the people they work with. And then they all go home. Maybe some socialize together, but they don't. But now company X has said in perpetuity, you can all work remotely and you can file your reports on widgets from your house as long as you ever want to. And now, Dominic, to just expand on Jay's point, now do all of those other things now have a much magnified impact on your life because you don't have those personal interactions. And listen, guys, I haven't met you. I've only seen you in two dimensions, but this is not the best way for humans to communicate, right? Looking at you on Zoom is fine. It does the job. But it's not an interaction that you're going to like take away from like, hey, you know what? We watched the same TV show and, you know, we both laugh and we go back to our offices and, you know, there's that sort of dopamine rush of just, you know, getting along with people and everything else. So it's a very long way of asking, has this isolation amplified the ugliness of these groups? I don't think we have the data yet to speak directly to it, but it's a very plausible hypothesis. I think, as you're saying, in the absence of the sort of mundane interactions we used to have all the time in person. So let's say you do still have a job, but you're doing it entirely online. Every interaction you're having is very purpose-driven, right? You're on Zoom to deal with a particular issue in a particular meeting. When that's done, it wraps up and everyone logs off Zoom. And what's missing from what we used to have previously was those five minutes in and out of the room where you chat and joke. The inside jokes of the office. Exactly. And, and you'd roll your eyes at the jerk of a boss. And it, all of this is really important. <laughs> So we've thought a lot about what are the implications for organizations, like building their identities. But I think what you're alluding to is there may be broader implications. And one of them, I think, is that if you outside of work, you know, are perhaps falling into a trap of some strange beliefs, in the back of your mind, if you're still going to work regularly and interacting with a set of friends there, the back of your mind is going to be your thought about how are they going to react? Like, could I explain this to my coworkers? And, and it's a bit of a reality check. And if that's gone, then... It's like we're losing a psychological resource. The fact that our identities are multifaceted is actually very useful to us because it's a check on any one of them. Well, and then Jay, too. I mean, we're talking about this in the context of people who once went to an office, once went to a job, whether it was a restaurant or whatever it was. We will soon, if not already, have people who get jobs who never meet each other in person, right? The only interaction they ever have is like this. The, the three of us are looking at each other, and this is as much as you ever know about me. You know, I live in this house, you know, my office has gray walls, you know, there's a window over here and that you're good at accounting or whatever the hell it is. You know, then what you do is nothing more than how you spend seven, eight hours a day and you have no psychological outlet for just fucking around, which I think sometimes we we underestimate. So I'll give a shout out to the advantages of being able to work from home. So right now, three of us can do this call from three different places. A lot of people are flourishing under this. They like that more time with their family, less commuting, more time with their kids. 
so there's a lot of benefits, right? That's one of the cool things about technology. But what we're talking about now, there was a really exciting study that came out on this about a week or two ago where they analyzed over 60,000 Microsoft employees and looked at their email chains. And what they found is that over the course of the pandemic, as they went remote, these people, they were fine working in their little team. So for example, you just talked about like so-and-so is a great accountant. You know, these little accounting teams can do all their work from home and then have their team meetings each day and get on the same page. What it eroded was all the connections with people outside your team. You know, those kind of soft networks that are critical for like being creative or innovative or just getting to know different people. You get to meet them at like the water cooler type of conversations. We're losing that in organizations. And it means that one of the biggest losses in organizations is going to be that organizational identity because you're just going to have your little team identity of us in accounting. We're not going to have any connection to people in sales or marketing or research and development or whatever. We're going to have our little team. So there's really going to be no opportunity to connect these people. It's going to take leadership to think of ways to bind people together, create a subordinate identities, just the same way there is politically. Like arguing about politics on Twitter all day, there's research on this. If you follow people who strongly disagree with you on Twitter and politics, you might think, well, that's good. It exposes you to different ideas. But what the research finds is, if anything, it backfires. You actually become more entrenched in your views. And so this fully virtually mediated interactions with other humans is good for some things, like this podcast, for example, but bad for so many parts of human life. And let, let me ask you this, and I don't want to make this an employment podcast because it's not what we do, but what about folks who do have to actually go to a place to work? that they do have to go to a grocery store or they do have to go to a restaurant. You know, we were calling them frontline employees. And now it's like, well, the three of us get to sit on Zoom and, you know, pontificate about the world. Is there a group dynamic where they feel like I'm out here on the razor's edge, you know, not only probably economically, but also health-wise and everything else? There might be a pressure or multiple pieces of pressure weighing down on someone, but they don't have an outlet, right? Like they got to go to this job. And I think one of the things this pandemic's exposed are inequities of all sorts in our societies. And that is one of them, the kind of work we do. Some people are much more privileged in that it's really doable from anywhere, although maybe it's not quite as satisfying as it used to be. It's still, you can do it from home just fine. You're perfectly safe. Generally speaking, Jay and I as professors, that's been our experience and it isn't a mark of tremendous privilege. Meanwhile, of course, yeah, people who work in grocery stores or restaurants have been unable to do that and they have to go to work, which is making them vulnerable. And then there are, of course, people who do things that just very, very difficult to do in a pandemic. And I think a lot of like artists, musicians, people whose jobs really entail getting together with other people. Well, and you've even seen that there have been, I think, Pat Oswalt, you know, is a extremely funny comedian. Jason Isbell, a terrific, you know, Americana artist, they both said, like, if your venue doesn't require vaccines, we're not going. And this created, and I can't speak to Pat Oswald fans, although I do find him funny, but Jason Isbell fans are rabid. And just watching on social media, the vitriol being hurled his way by so many of his fans by be like, I'm never going to listen to another one of your songs. I'm never going to buy another one of your records. And he's like, if that's how you feel, that's how you feel. So even amongst music fans, as you said, Dominic, you know, among comedy fans, things that should have nothing otherwise to do other than the enjoyment that you receive by seeing this person you're a fan of actually in the flesh has now come down to like, well, I'm part of this group. And because I'm part of this group now, I can't be part of that group. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the things about identities that 
once we start to carve up the world into us versus them, it activates all these parts of the way our brain works. And in this case, you're, you're right, it just harms those fans, right? Because now they don't have access to that music. And so there is kind of a classic spite, right? You're cutting off your nose in spite of your face. This is the way, unfortunately, once these types of identities become entrenched and you have conflict, that people are harming themselves to make a point. You know, you saw this with like, I think this was maybe in 2017, where people were burning their Nikes and posting videos online, destroying Keurig coffee machines. I mean, these people bought all these things for hundreds of dollars and they're just like burning it up as a political symbol to them of loyalty to a party or to a leader. Keurig's not advertising on the show I like, so I'm going to like burn my Keurig machine. So guys, is there a light at the end of the tunnel? Like Dominic, is there something that we can do individually to like crack this code? Like give us some good news here. Well, one piece of good news is that while polarization is extraordinarily high in some ways, it's actually not so high in others. And this is often a distinction that's missed. So the kind of polarization we've been really focusing on is what social psychologists would call affective polarization or emotional polarization. It's dislike for the other side, distrust. And that's really bad, right? It, it causes to avoid each other and maybe even want to harm each other. But it's not exactly the same thing as actually disagreeing about issues, like legitimate policy issues. Certainly, there are some really substantive areas of disagreement and some things that have flared up and become very visible, like vaccination. But it turns out, if you actually get it down to policy specifics, like what do we really think good healthcare would look like, or even something really contested like gun control, turns out the left and the right, not necessarily politicians, but ordinary citizens often agree far more than they disagree. And if you can help people realize that all of that vitriolic language we're getting from our elites isn't helping the situation, it can actually shift them a little bit toward maybe wanting to work together. And perhaps we would hope demand that politicians and elites actually try to reach some compromises to achieve things that we actually agree on more than we disagree about. I mean, look, once the coin of the realm became fire and brimstone and there was a lot of money in it, I mean, in our particular case, we see that the Republican conservative message machine is far more effective and sophisticated than anything the left can hope to have. And they make a shit ton of money from it, right? Fox News makes billions of dollars a year, not from advertising, but from the carriage fees they have with companies because there's money in this ugliness and they're perfectly willing to go along with it. All right. So guys, I want to thank you all for coming. Before we get out of here, I want to remind everybody, the book is The Power of Us, Harnessing Our Shared Identities to Improve Performance, Increase Cooperation, and Promote Social Harmony. Well, and thank God for that. But before we get out of here, Dominic and Jay, where can our listeners find you online? You can go actually to our book page, which is powerofus.online. So powerofus, all one word, dot online, has links to all our social media accounts. We're active on Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, and we share a lot of research. So we're kind of sharing as things are coming out, what's new, what's the best science you can use to help understand these issues and figure them out. And Dominic, do you have anything to add? So we also have a weekly newsletter. It's uh, Power of Us substack.com, where we write a lot about cutting-edge research on identity and talk a lot about issues of polarization. And our book is available in hardcover form, ebook, and also audiobook, where we recorded the introduction, which is a lot of fun. And always, everybody, you can find me on Twitter, at Reed Galen. Dominic, Jay, I want to thank you for joining me today. And everybody, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. 
don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.